The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to Slate Political Gab Fest for October 26, 2017, the live from Chicago edition. We are on stage in front of a rowdy and large crowd at the Merle Reskin Theater on the campus of DePaul University in Chicago. It is great to be in Chicago. Hello. I'm David Plotz of Atlas Obscura. To my immediate right is John Dickerson of CBS's Face the Nation. And to John's right, in only this respect, is Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine. (laughs) On this week's GabFest, Arizona Senator Jeff Flake, Tennessee Senator Bob Corker, Arizona Senator John McCain, former President George W. Bush, this was the week when Republicans savaged President Trump but couldn't manage to speak his name. Does this foretell an actual split in the party? Then we'll talk with Cook County State's Attorney Kim Fox about criminal justice reform here in Chicago. Then, since the Harvey Weinstein story broke in the New York Times last week, there has been a flood of news about ill-behaving men, assaulters, harassers, bulliers, and they are now getting publicly shamed. Is it finally impossible for men to behave like scum toward the women they work with? Plus, we'll have cocktail chatter and a Slate Plus segment, which will be a Q&A with you, our dear audience. And yes, it is kind of weird to shill for a show that is going to be 1,200 miles to the east of here. Uh, but here we but go. Yes. we're going to shill anyway. I've checked with American Airlines. And for just $269, you could fly to Boston on December 6th and see our GabFest show, our conundrum show, live at the Wilbur Theater in Boston at 7.30 p.m. You can get tickets for that show by going to slate.com slash live. December 6th in Boston, tickets at slate.com slash live. I'm glad we made it without you making a Wilbur. I know, no piggy sound? John usually does a little no, sound I was try- for Wilbur. I was trying to think if we should offer some kind of prize for somebody who flies all the way to, to No, but Boston. then they'll just be taking seats from those poor East Coast folks. Don't you think, I bet don't they you don't think, think they're poor East Coast yeah. folks. Someone just erupted an hour. Don't you think the yeah. coast has lorded it over the Midwest for too long? Huh. Hey. Okay. All right, all right. That was a little bit of pandering on your part, yeah. wouldn't you say? Yeah. <laughs> Arizona Republican Jeff Flake took to the floor of the Senate on Tuesday and delivered a scorcher of a speech without mentioning President Trump by name, which honestly is quite hard to do. It is very hard not to say Trump's name for 10 minutes, I have found. Flake assailed the president and his flunkies. He said, reckless, outrageous, and undignified behaviors become excused and countenanced as telling it like it is when it is actually just reckless, reckless, outrageous, and undignified. We have fooled ourselves for long enough that a pivot to governing is a right around the corner, a return to civility and stability right behind it. We know better than that. By now, we all know better than that. Then this brave David, this profile in political courage, took his slingshot and his five stones and ran for the hills. He announced he would not seek re-election in 2018. He joins Bob Corker, the Tennessee Republican, a retiring senator from Tennessee, 
and George W. Bush, the former president, and John McCain, the Arizona senator, Republican senator, presumed to be serving his last term and five years from an election, even if he is not serving his last term, among the few Republicans who will call out the president almost by name. So, Emily, is what Flake and Corker and George W. Bush and John McCain is what they have done, is that courageous? Is it cowardly? Somewhere in between. Somewhere in between. I mean, it's a step, right? It's taking on the president of their party. I don't understand the not naming. I mean, I guess for George W., there's some decorum about a former president, but it was so clear that Flake was talking about President Trump. That just seems sort of like this odd lacuna in the speech, at least to me. Look, I mean, I think given where the base is, given Flake's own polling, which showed that his whole stance against Trump has cost him enormously, there is some cost to being the person who stands up, at least in the immediate term. And I think he made it pretty clear that he was making a play for history. I mean, he was talking about what are we going to tell our kids that we did at this moment, um, which is pretty profound. That's a different lens than politicians normally use to make their decisions about what to say, I think. On the other hand, I don't think we should be giving too much credit because speaking against um, Trump is different from taking actions that actually derail or unsettle his agenda. What... John, so, well, CNN called this speech one of the most important Senate speeches of modern times, which seems premature. But <laughs> do, you, do you think it was important? Do you think this is a significant moment? Well, it depends when you put the needle down on modern times. That would be an interesting I know, right? Thing. Like, what if you were going all the way back to the Enlightenment? <laughs> <laughs> right, right. And really between the Enlightenment and, and like the 18th century, there, there really weren't that, that many really many wonderful Senate, Senate speeches. <laughs> they, they just sat there mute, waiting for the cameras to turn on. Can I, um, can I ignore the question and, uh, and address this question, which is if you were doing the like 12th grade English paper about uh, analyzing uh, Flake's speech, he started it by saying, uh, Mr. President, I rise today to say enough. So the fun of this is, okay, so the reason, in the Senate custom, you don't say the names of your colleagues. That's why it's always the gentleman from this, or the gentlelady from there. So when you rise to speak to the president, you're actually speaking to the president of the Senate. But of course, in this case, it has a double meaning because he could say, I, Mr. President, and you could imagine he's talking to the actual president since that's the thrust of his remarks. But the president of the Senate is actually the vice president, Mike Pence, who is a lifelong and dear friend of Jeff Flake. They both came up through the same kind of tradition, the same kind of conservative um, ideological position. And Pence, through the campaign, constantly tried to convince Flake to support Trump, who, which, who he did not support. And he, and he said, when I interviewed um, Flake, he said, you know, Mike Pence kept saying that the president in private is a different person than the person you see. And Flake said, well, I, th that's fine, but I don't know how you govern in private. So just in that first sentence, he kind of, you, the entire speech is contained in that first sentence. And it's really what struck me about it was that it was a charge to his colleagues to not be complicit in what he says is uh, allowing this to go forward. Jeff Flake is not exactly a rhino. You know, he comes out of that Western Republican tradition, which is at the heart of the new Republican Party. New, I should say, after Eisenhower. We're in modern times here. So... Um, <laughs> 
But, you know, it's the party of Goldwater, then of Reagan, then of, of Nixon, all from California, all from the West. He's not like some squish. So this is an ideological argument. Corker, Bob Corker, the chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, who also... Uh, is not a squish. Is, well, it's not a squish. I mean, these guys both vote with the president like 95-some-odd percent of the time, which we can get to later. But Corker's coming at it from a different side, not from... He basically said that the president is, is in danger of getting us into a war by mistake. So his came from this kind of dire national security side. Um, so I've been trying to figure out how to characterize what this schism is about, because it's not really about policy. I mean, Corker and Flake have particular policy differences with Trump, but really it's not that. Right. So it's tempting to characterize it as a difference of style. I don't think that quite does justice to it, because there are also these kind of fundamental democratic values at play about free speech and, you know, norms and structure of government. So is there, what? how, right, how do right. we talk about this? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And it's a really good question because if you believe in what Corker and Flake and the Never Trumpers and the conservative movement believe in, you are at a disadvantage if your critique is seen as just theater review. In other words, he's a little too boorish for our for our kind. You know, he's not one of us. Right. That unseemliness. Unseemliness, which is an easily puncturable debating point because it's like, you know, we could use a little more kind of spirit in our in our country and in our leaders. But so the critique, it seems to me, from the two different positions are from Flake, it's that he has lost that he is not a conservative. And so that ideologically, he's not of our movement and therefore doesn't believe in the things we believe in about limited government, about morality, restraint, freedom. Like he doesn't believe in any of those things. So why are you putting all of our chips on this president? I think secondarily, he has a moral claim that he makes about the president and both the way he behaves in public and also the diminution of the party and the republic that comes from not standing up and saying, as they often did during Bill Clinton's presidency, this is wrong behavior. In um, Corker's case, it's that he is not up to the job and that he is um, in danger, that he's undermining his secretary of state, which is going to get the country in a position where it might stumble into war and or in a position where he is surprised by something on the foreign policy front, Niger or anything else, that his instincts are not up to the task of the job. And so his is a much more kind of in the situation room when it's hitting the fan incapable of raising to the level where he can make the kinds of decisions that you need to make to keep America safe or do whatever you need to do. So those are two of the critiques. And then, of course, there are, there are others. So, Emily, one of the things that Flake literally said in his speech, which I, I, I found bizarre, was that he, he essentially admonished his colleagues not to be not to quail before a primary challenge, not to not to be daunted by that, and yet as he flips and, off stage, well, as he as he himself goes off stage, and so what? It, how how can uh, a Corker? Uh, I mean, Corker and Flake. It is perfectly legitimate for someone to give up on politics and to give up on a profession to say, "I'm not going to run anymore." It's fine to do that. I, you, there are all kinds of reasons why one wouldn't want to be a senator or one wouldn't want to be um, in Washington right now. How can politicians who differ with Trump for these reasons that John just identified there and are in the Republican Party, how can they run? What can they do? If, if these two men who are the, so far the most vocal won't stand up and fight and actually do something, what can anyone else do? Right. They're essentially saying that the battle electorally is lost. I mean, I think you can argue that for the two of them, they can still be effective voices. And maybe in a sense, if they're not being kind of mocked by Steve Bannon for how poorly they're doing in the 
2018 race, they could, or yeah, for Flake at least, they could be more effective, that there's a way in which that they can now um, rise above, you know, politics and the particular campaign, but they're absolutely not providing a model for anyone to join them who is actually running in a race. Now, so who would that be? Uh, right. Well, I mean, Susan Collins decided to stay in the Senate and she is on the, would be on the target list in terms of being a Republican. She's actually far more moderate than the, than these two. Um, and so she's decided to stay now. She's obviously not been this vocal. Um, ben Sass has been super vocal. We'll see whether he runs again. Is he up in 2018? I no. forget. That's what no. I um, I mean, there is a, an alternate view of this, which is not focused on the two who have dissented, but on the many, 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 many who have not, right, the 50 who have not joined that. And so the argument turned in another direction is the president's winning. He's pushing out these people who, um, who he doesn't, you know, who don't like him and who say mean things about him. Great. He's gone. People will be elected who will have to be get elected by supporting the president. They're not going to be able to get their voters to turn out without that. It's not going to change the votes because these guys normally vote with the president. But it's nevertheless going to have, you know, it's moving things in the Trump direction. Well, and right. it spooks everyone, although you're assuming that the Republicans are going to hold those seats, which especially in Arizona is no sort of foregone conclusion. Sure. Right? And that'll be interesting. That'll be a fascinating thing to watch. Now... You could argue that if you want a Republican to win in that seat, you want to, you don't know who you get. There is a chance that somebody comes in who is more like somebody McConnell might like and who would win. And there's also a big chance that somebody comes in who's more like Steve Bannon and who Steve Bannon gets as a condition for giving him support, money, love, and otherwise, they will vote against McConnell as majority leader, which will be is one of the things to watch in, in 2018. One of the things that I find sort of sad about this whole spectacle is how easily uh, Flake and, and Corker and other people who oppose Trump have, have sort of folded on this. And that, to me, it's not a surprise that the defections that we're seeing are coming in the Senate because the Senate is a place where essentially your job is to be a rhetorician. You don't actually ever do anything. You're not responsible for anything. You don't govern... You just sort of, you, you high-mindedly give speeches. Give speeches. The vote and, on um, class action lawsuits may, uh, is slightly against I mean, that. It was a terrible, that was right, that's a terrible vote. vote. They I did, agree yeah, with I know, but no, it they, matters. Yeah. They do, it, it does matter, but very, most of what they do is give speeches and then, you know, occasionally you cast a vote. Not, and rarely these days. I mean, the Article 1 is not being carried forth with the intensity that our founders expected pause one more moment on that vote though they just dismantled years of work by the consumer finance protection bureau that was going to give consumers the right to sue banks again right it was a terrible vote okay go on but i think it but it's just they've run these senators have run up against someone who is a better rhetorician than they are and president trump and they've just kind of given up rather than say Let's try to take him on well, and it, let's let's challenge him at this. It depends what your audience is, because I think they're and this is what we were just talking about, which is in terms of the Republican off non-presidential year electorate, he's a better rhetorician than they are in terms of the general election audience or the country as a whole. Their rhetoric is probably more powerful with that larger group than than the president's. Uh, yeah, I think I believe that. Yeah, but they're not. But they will be in in that year in 2020. They're going to be lobbyists working for you know <laughs> right. big pharma. Well, right? also they could effectiveness. Be running John Kasich's campaign, right? There's a chance that someone well, will primary John, Trump. John Kasich is is I think has been an admirable figure in the. John Kasich has been consistent about this, has stood up about this, and has basically you know 
been doing this for, for a year when nobody else was. So I, I give him props. So here's an, another thing that's going to happen is there's going to be a vote on this tax cut bill. So what are Flake and Corker doing with that? Right. So Flake has, I think, said nothing in opposition. Corker has talked about not wanting to add to the deficit. So he could use that as a reason to vote against. But I bet he will vote for and that the reason will be both his conservative politics and beliefs and also the fact that to vote against would be to vote against all his friends. Right. It's not just Trump's success and agenda. It's also McConnell. It's the leadership. If they're behind something, I mean, Corker is close to those people. Right. I think that's, yeah, I think that's possible. Um, it depends how many more rounds this thing goes, right? I mean, because you could imagine it getting to a level where one's person, where you get into the middle of a fight and you just do stuff for the fight, not for, for other reasons. I don't know. There, did you guys read, there was an interesting story in, I think it was in the Atlantic, which is always true. Uh, <laughs> but it was, they, I think, it, I think the Atlantic sort of surveyed a bunch of historians about whether they thought a civil war was how likely they thought a civil war was in the United States in the next 10 to 20 years. And what was astonishing was that the, there were some folks who thought it was like 80% likelihood and some who thought it was as low as 5%, but the consensus was sort of 35%, which is a terrifying number. But one of the, one of the points that, that these civil war historians were making was that sort of a, and instantly they don't think it would be something like where, where it's Shiloh and Gettysburg. It's, they, sort of a different kind of civil war, but we'll, we're going to bracket that. Uh, Wait, but, how can you bracket that? Know. What, with what pillows? Kind of civil war are we about a civil, sort, of low, sort of low intensity uh, guerrilla like conflicts, secession. local conflicts, not, not full two sets of armies. Charlottesville times engaged. 10, yes. not times Yes, right, exactly. Charlottesville every week. Yeah. Um, and, but one of the points that the civil war historians made is that they thought a a necessary precursor to a civil war was actually that the parties have to fracture. That one of the reasons why the civil war happened is that the party system in pre-civil war America fell apart and the Whigs vanished, the Republican party emerged, the Democratic party split. split. Um, and, and so the question is, is that likely to happen? And the party I assume that's more likely to fracture would be the Republican party. John, do you think there's any possibility that this what's going on with a flake and a corker and McCain and Bush and Romney yeah. presages an actual split. I don't think so because you see Romney you mentioned in there, Romney's been pretty silent. There are people even, and, and look at um, Lindsey Graham who is in the usual suspects category. He's now been golfing with the president twice. You have, you don't have critical mass. And I was talking to a, a Republican who's definitely in the never Trump camp and trying to figure out what to do with this energy. And his argument today was, you know, the problem is that you have, you have individually, you have moments where you have Flake and Corker and sometimes Susan Collins and McCain and Graham, but they're one-offs. And so what happens is the president can just go, as he explained to Maria Bartiromo, bing, 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 and then he takes them on individually. There's not, they don't get, gain the strength in numbers. Now, one really interesting notion would be if, the, if those numbers, let's just take the three who aren't up for re-election and then Susan Collins, who seems to be um, protected from this, even though she's running again, they could they could hold the Senate hostage. I mean, if you want to pass a major, if you want a majority on tax cuts, then like come talk to us four. 
because without us, you can't pass it. And then you could add, you could imagine adding But they Graham don't have policy distinctions with the president. That's the problem is that their yeah, well, complaints they are, are Well, certainly on healthcare, they did. on healthcare, they definitely did. But on, and on taxes, I'm, we don't even know. I mean, right now there is a tax framework, which they've now stripped it, like several things out of. And the president has suddenly said, like, I don't want this. And I, so it's not even clear what the tax cut package is anymore. And even if, you, even if it wasn't about getting policy passed, it would be a way to say, wait a minute. You want these things to pass, then you, you have to listen to us and, you know, and use that as some way to change. Because one of the things that, that I think you're touching on is, okay, there are complaints. There are complaints everywhere. But, like, what are you going to do about it? How are you going to leverage this moment to improve the lives of the people you were sent here to, to represent? And on, you know, that's not right. happening. Last point on this. Emily, do you think in a year that Jeff Flake is a more, and Bob Corker are more important figures in American political life or less important than they are today? Less. Little. Yeah. I mean, I, no, I think that they will matter less as they receive, as, as what, beca- what matters is who's taking over in their states. Um, they're going to have less and less of a microphone. And, you know, the question really will be is, as we've been talking about, are other people going to follow them? And what else happens if they turn out to seem really prescient um, but isn't it really just about Trump's numbers with the base? I mean, I just, how can you really get away from that as a deciding factor? Can I just end on one point, which is that there is the substance of what they're actually saying and whether anybody has to rise to refute it and, and say, no, this is not the case. Or in the people, whether it's President Bush, John McCain, and even John Kelly last week, talking about the, the, the collapse of standards in the country. Let's, let's, a lot of people are talking about the collapse of standards. Various people are saying, here's who's wrong and who's not. But what we used to agree on is that if standards have collapsed, one of the people we might turn to is the president. Because FDR said the office of the presidency is primarily an office of moral leadership. So the question then is, is this, <laughs> even, if you blame, even if you hold the president, let's hold everyone blameless for the dropping of standards. Who then do we bring on stage to reassert the moral character of the country? And if you can't make the case that the president should be on stage, isn't that curious? Because in most of American history, you would, he would be the first person you would bring on the stage. All right. I think the first person you should bring on stage for that is, is maybe Kim Fox. Different person. Nice. <laughs> we work on our transitions in a really elaborate way. This episode of the GapFest is sponsored by Aura Frames. Are you ready to win Mother's Day? Cement your reputation as the best gift giver in your family. Give the moms in your life an Aura digital picture frame preloaded with decades of family photos. That mom will love looking back on childhood memories, seeing what you're up to today, checking out grandkids, checking out cousins, and even better, with unlimited storage and an easy-to-use app, you can keep on updating your mom's frame with new photos so that it's a gift that keeps on giving. This is how I live in my family. I gave my mother an aura frame. It was either for Mother's Day or for her birthday. She absolutely adores it. She's constantly hectoring me to update it with more photos, which I do. I also gave my girlfriend's mother an aura frame, and I hope she hectors my girlfriend to update it with more photos. But it is a present that will bring absolute delight to a mother in your life. And they have a great deal for Mother's Day. GapFest listeners can save on this perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. 
Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. to have Kim Fox with us tonight. You probably need no introduction to your home audience, but because we also have listeners out there in the world, Kim Fox is the state's attorney for Cook County, which means she is the chief prosecutor for the city of Chicago and environs. She spent 12 years in the office handling cases as what insiders call line prosecutor. She left the office and came back. And Kim's election in November 2016, to me, was part of one of the most interesting and I think important phenomena in American politics today, which is that a group of candidates ran for district attorney and state's attorney around the country in big cities and in small cities as self-declared reformers and progressives who have a kind of different vision of criminal justice that is not merely about throwing more and more people in prison. I would say a more holistic approach to trying to reduce crime and making their communities safer and at the same time really paying attention to fairness in the criminal justice system. So it's something I'm watching avidly. And uh, so Kim, I get to ask the first question. So you came into office after the killing of Laquan McDonald um, and a big fight in Chicago over the release of the videotape of that shooting. Both your predecessor and uh, Mayor Emanuel really did not want that video to get out, so it seemed, and then it did. And so you came into office at a moment where I think building and rebuilding trust between law enforcement, meaning your office and also the police department, which you don't oversee, is this crucial um, factor for the culture and kind of health of the city of Chicago. So how do you, what are your first steps? It's a big job to take on. How do you sort of start thinking about that? Well, I think you have to first acknowledge that that has to happen, right? And I think you have to say that we have to rebuild trust. And in saying you have to rebuild means you have to acknowledge that it's broken. And I think for too many people in our systems who don't want to acknowledge that perhaps we had been doing things poorly or wrong or backwards because then you are somehow complicit in breaking it means that you'll continue to do policies that are bad because you won't acknowledge that it's broken. And so I think I was very honest with the people in in Cook County that our criminal justice system was broken. I thought that it was only right to not just look at other law enforcement agencies like police, but what is the role of the prosecutor? And I think in 2016, there was a real conversation about prosecutors. No, nobody generally knows who prosecutors are. Um, I wish you guys can follow others around and clap like you did for me. Because um, yeah. this doesn't happen. Um, <laughs> this does not happen. Um, <laughs> have, you, have you thought about giving them like Instagram accounts? I mean... You know? <laughs> something meet your prosecutor yeah i mean because no one it's it's one of those offices that are largely um unnoticed 95 percent of elected prosecutors run unopposed and so people yes 95 percent of elected prosecutors run unopposed so i ran against a two-term incumbent um and it always i think to myself what happens if i hadn't jumped in even in the midst of everything that had happened um we may have still been with our former prosecutor and going down a path not just with 
police accountability around Laquan McDonald, but around mass incarceration, around a bail system that punishes poor people, around wrongful convictions, around juvenile justice in the school to prison pipeline. And so I think for me, saying our bail system is broken and having the credibility with the public who already knows it um, matters. And then it means that I can get buy-in to actively work to fix those things. Kim. Justice. Kim. It's going to happen uh, every time she has a I really envy call. other yeah. uh, states' attorneys across the country. Mm-hmm. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Chicago. Um, so, Kim, I do think that probably the first uh, question that you're always asked, and, and our local audience may already be bored with this. I hope they're not bored with it. But from an outside perspective, the, the, the first uh, thing that everyone is remarking about Chicago is the remarkable rise in gun violence and murders over the past couple of years. Sure. And uh, you are obviously new to grappling with this problem. What, for those of us who are outside of Chicago, why, what's, what's happened? Why has it happened? And is there any reason to think it's going to reverse? So, I mean, we are in the grips of what's been the last couple of years a rise in, in violent crime in Chicago. What this audience knows is that we have an overproliferation of guns on our streets. We have more guns taken off the streets of Chicago than New York and Los Angeles combined. We, we take more off than those two um, large municipalities combined. And so in the course of the last couple of years, in the wake of what was happening post-Laquan McDonald and criminologists and sociologists will all debate, like, what was the impact of that? Is it that police are not doing more aggressive policing? Is it that the community is not being as engaged? Is it just the proliferation of guns? I think we don't know what the answer is. And anyone who says that they definitively know what the answer is, I think, is being disingenuous. What we do know is that having access to that many guns, no matter who you are, I mean, we have children 11, 12, 13, carrying guns, that level of access to guns and the absence of other things that we know that they need, quality education, mental health, drug addiction treatment, um, really affordable housing, the constellation of things that are happening in the neighborhoods most impacted by violence. If we only have a conversation just about guns and not about those things and think we're going to solve the issue of violence, we're going to miss the boat. really important as a way of framing the set of questions that the city needs to address. I would add one more thing where I'm curious whether you think this matters, but I was looking at a graph of um, Chicago's rate of solving homicides, and that has gone down significantly. Um, Fewer murders are being solved, and then, you know, they're... Oh, it's horrible. Right. So people can make an argument that that also... Yeah. I mean, it's all interrelated. I mean, if we look at the Chicago clearance rate for homicides, uh, the number is hovering somewhere this year about 23, 24%. Which is incredibly low when you look at the national figure. Is that 23 or 24% solved or not solved? Solved. And the national average, I think, is 60%, I think, still. Correct. And that for shootings, so not, you know, you've not killed someone, but you've shot someone, and we have, you know, on pace of 4,000 people shot, the clearance rate is 5%. Why? Why? Oh, my God. So Trump could walk down the street. (laughs) Trump could walk down the street of Chicago. And literally shoot somebody and get away with it. And get away with it. (laughs) 
Just right. like he said. <laughs> he said he could. So okay. even if it's not clear what's causing what, I mean, that is a huge factor in terms of how people think about crime, <laughs> reporting things to the police, That's coming right. in as a witness to testify in a case. And which is why I think the legitimacy of our systems matter, right? If you believe that someone can shoot you or shoot at your neighbor and nothing will happen to them, then your inclination may be, if something happens, uh, to take it up yourself, you know, with some good old street justice. And that doesn't make anybody safe. And so I think, again, the, we, we can ill afford to say to people that we're doing everything that we can when we're not. And the homicide clearance rate, the shooting clearance rate, you know, I think the Chicago Police Department is actively working on those things and actively looking at innovations from other municipalities because they're not happy with it. I mean, I, I don't want anyone here to be resigned that this is... It is our normal right now, but that is acceptable. And I think the shock that you all have expressed by that number um, should also mean a push for accountability. And I think that's where we are right now, is that there is a reckoning um, with our law enforcement partners that what we have been doing hasn't worked and we have to do something different. Is there a, um, is it a problem to identify where in the chain is uh, causes these low rates and then or is it you know where the problem is, you just need to implement a fix? I mean, how complicated is the response? You know, it, it's complicated only in that not one entity owns it, right? Mm. So if you talk to people, you know, the easy answer is, well, people in the community don't trust the police, and so they're not talking. Mm. And then if you talk to others, it's like, well, the police came out, and they saw the guy laying on the ground, and they were like, who shot you? And he was like, I'm, I'm, I'm not talking to you. And then they're like, well, we don't know. And then walk away. Mm. Like, that's also not acceptable. It's not acceptable that no one talks. And so I think you can't own one entity of why that disconnect is there. What I do think you need to do is a deep dive. I think you do need to look at the data. I think for some communities, they feel like the effort isn't being put in there. And that kind of fatalistic view of you want us to perish. And that's frightening. That is frightening. And is there, you said that they're looking at other cities and other communities. Is there a model that has worked in this regard? Well, listen, um, New York's closure rate is somewhere around 70%. Yeah. Um, DC is down a little bit, but at one point it was almost 100%. So it was really interesting. And homicides went down. Thank you for telling us that. Uh, <laughs> Sorry. It's since declined. So, yes, there are other models. Um, <laughs> And but but yeah. are, the, are those other models replicable or are they just like well they've got a whole I mean, Chicago is unique. I think we. I think it's only fair to say that. I think how we deal, the structures around what we have historically called gang violence in Chicago is different than it is in LA, and different in New York, and different in DC. Um, what well, just give another sentence about that? I mean, I, I think what's happened in Chicago is we don't have traditional gangs like people have seen um, from television shows, of you know the Bloods and the Crips, you know, on one side or the other, we have real fractionalization of gangs. And, you know, we have, you know, crews of two, three, four people who are part of a larger set who are literally fighting for a corner, right, and not a full territory. And so trying to figure out who's doing what, 
you know, looking at social media, looking at Facebook, looking um, at Snapchat and Instagram to figure out who's beefing with who, it's really complicated. And again, that over proliferation of guns also makes it difficult. And so how you attack, how do you, you know, you're, you, there's no head to go after. There's no structure. There's not, it's not like the Sopranos, right? You go after Tony, then he'll give up everybody else. There's these smaller factions that make it a lot more, you have to be more nimble. You have to be more innovative. You have to have more um, ground level intelligence in a way that I think in other jurisdictions, there is a a more organized network than here in Chicago. So the only thing worse than organized crime is disorganized crime? Yes. We also have to give people reasons not to participate in it and to see right. other avenues for, right, instead right. of, like, fighting for respect all the time, which is what a lot of it comes down to, I think. I mean, listen, a lot of it is respect. A lot of it is money. A lot of it is survival. A lot of it is, you know, a lot of these neighborhoods that are impacted their quality of life is so dramatically different than any of us could ever imagine. And, you know, we we talk about, like, why do people carry guns? And I think for a lot of people, the notion is, well, you must be a bad guy if you are an unlicensed gun carrier. For them, it's survival. And it's like, what happens when we have a mindset where it is better to be judged by 12 than carried by six? And that is a very real thing. And I think it's hard for broader communities to understand that. I think there's a, there's a judgment that comes. Um, but the reality is we had a horrible murder of a nine-year-old a few years ago here in Chicago who was lured off of a swing into an alley and shot um, and killed, allegedly, um, for the sins of his father. And one of the things I say when we talk about that case, people are, are it's gut-wrenching. And I say that nine-year-old, I, I had a nine-year-old at the time, um, who's now 11, we lived many miles away. And she happened to catch it on the news, and she couldn't sleep that night. And I didn't know why. And she's like, there was a boy who was killed. And I said, well, that's not us. That's not, she was traumatized. The classmates of Tyshawn Lee, who will sit with that empty chair every day, and sat with that chair every day for the rest of that fourth grade school year, are thinking, I've lost a classmate, I've lost a friend in the most horrific of fashions. Is someone going to do that to me? And then there's someone who says, hey, little man, I got something for you, which is a gun. When we can get more guns than mental health and trauma treatment, we got a problem. And that's what's happening here. President Trump loves to talk about Chicago. It's his favorite example of what he calls American carnage. Um, the Department of Justice has really changed what it was doing in Chicago. It, under the Obama administration, there was an investigation of um, civil rights violations by the police department, a big report. The city may or may not be implementing some of those changes, but the federal government is no longer that kind of presence. And what Trump and Attorney General Sessions talk about is tougher policing as the answer in Chicago and across the country. Is that rhetoric helpful or not for you doing your job? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know anyone in Chicago who takes this seriously. Um, and, and I say that with all due respect. I mean, I, I think if you... All due respect. Um, do. Do is a key part <laughs> that's of that, right? right. I mean, I, 
we lived through what happened with Laquan McDonald. We we know, and and that was kind of that was one big public nationwide issue. But we had um, issues of wrongful convictions in in this county for a long time. We had the cases of John Burge, who was a police. Um, commander who ran basically what was called a terror squad, um, where when we abolished the death penalty in Illinois a few years ago, it was because there were years of these horrific abuses, so much so that we have a curriculum in Chicago public schools teaching about that torture. And so I think the people in Chicago recognize that there is an issue with wanting to make sure that we have a police department that is the utmost of professionalism and integrity and doesn't abuse its citizens. I think that has been a recognized given here. And so the notion that, and I should say for most uh, people here, the notion that what we've seen and heard for the course of the last two years is make believe no one buys that. I think we have a real opportunity here. Uh, the Attorney General Lisa Madigan went to court um, to fight to enforce federally uh, by a federal judge for oversight of the consent decree or work out a consent decree, which I think is amazing. We are, and I got to do a plug for Chicago, we're Chicagoans. We really don't wait for people to come save us. If we were waiting for Jeff Sessions to come save us, uh, it's abundantly clear he won't. This is a real opportunity for the city, again, in that level of accountability, to say, the city of Chicago, you can't afford not to do this. And we're not going to half-ass our way through it. We're not going to just do small changes. We have to fundamentally change how we do this. And it's in the interest of public safety, that this isn't about villainizing law enforcement. I am a law enforcement official. It's about elevating the work because our communities that are being the most harmed need us to be at our absolute best and the public should stand for no less. What's the the proliferation of guns? What's the what's the plan there? How does that get That's that is the vexing question because I we get you know 60% of the guns that are flooding the streets of Chicago come from Indiana. Mike Pence. Um, and but to tell people who don't know this intimately as our audience does, what does that mean exactly that they come from Indiana? So we didn't have gun, we don't have gun um, dealers in the city of Chicago. Like there was laws on the books that prohibited guns being sold in the city of Chicago. Um, and we have very few in our surrounding suburbs. And so the guns, they weren't just popping out of the sky. It was literally an iron pipeline from Indiana, and you don't have police officers standing on the border saying, let me check your your trunk. So there has to be greater coordination. I will say uh, that the ATF has added an additional 20 um, ATF agents here in the city of Chicago. Uh, The police superintendent and I have been working on trying to come up with a gun strategy to deal with trafficking. We're going to have a new U.S. attorney um, in short order who I've heard nothing but good things about who is committed uh, to gun trafficking. And I think it has to be a local and federal response, that it's not enough. Um, what we've been doing has not been enough. So do they, get, just in terms of the federal piece, does the, do they get this? I mean, in terms of, you know, ATF and the U.S. Attorney? I think 
they said they would send in the feds, um, and they sent in 20 ATF agents. Um, so I do think that they get that the gun piece is huge. Yeah. I think the U.S. Attorney's Office is now this year, at my understanding, have done more gun cases than they have um, in the last several years. I think we, you can't not get it at this point. Mm-hmm. You cannot not get it. But also getting it, it the universe of getting it has been narrowed, right? I mean, the real question is, does Congress get it? Would Congress ever pass the kinds of laws that would close the loopholes that allow for, I mean, if you're having people go across one by one and bring back guns, that's different from like 70 people. I mean, but one person bringing a whole bunch of guns. Are they right? purchasing them through unlicensed gun dealers? Is that the way the pipeline works or yes. is it? Okay. Can I ask one more question before you head off to, to take some guns away from people? Um, <laughs> This is a totally different uh, subject, which is, so you're an elected prosecutor. Elected prosecutors seem like an atrocious idea, only slightly worse than elected judges, but I would, I've never had the chance to share the stage with an elected prosecutor before. What's the case for you being elected rather than appointed by... You so, want me to defend my position? I'm gonna, yeah. just, if you don't want to, I will. I have lots of thoughts about this. Listen, I, I, it is an awkward position to be, you know, when I was a line assistant, um, again, there was no, you're out there, you're doing justice, you are advocating on behalf of communities and victims and the like. Um, having to go and declare a party and raise money and shake hands. I mean, when people are running for mayor or Congress, it's like, I want a road. I want to, all I offer is justice. Right. And that's a lot. It is. A, that's all I got. Right. And, yeah. and, but you find that sometimes people who like are willing to engage are like, ah, not justice. I want something else. Um, and that is. Is that something else? The opposite that's of justice? Chica- that's what we call yeah. Chicago justice. Yeah. yeah. That was a canceled TV show. Um, <laughs> Come on. Who, by the way, they had Carl Weathers playing the state's attorney. (laughs) And it didn't last. Uh, (laughs) um, And so I I agree with you. I think the notion of having politics in in the justice system is is an odd thing. But I will also say, however having the people be able to give a voice about what their justice um, system looks like. If the traditional role has been, quite frankly, people who have not had contact with the community, who believe in law and order and punishment, and if you have people like a Jeff Sessions who is appointed and not elected, he is appointed, um, are you getting a better system of justice? I think the, the, the politics is awkward and icky and and how you have to go about doing it, but I also don't think you necessarily get a better result. I think you don't get someone like me from the public housing of Chicago um, who, like, lived the wire, didn't watch the box set, um, (laughs) saying and having proximity to the issues and where it's not academic if I don't have a chance to run for it. The people of Cook County believed in a better version of our justice system, and that's what they chose. And that... That's a big thing. Yeah, that's right. Uh, I'm going to just add one small, less inspiring fact, which is I think 
46 or 47 states elect prosecutors. The appointed prosecutors are in Alaska and Connecticut and New Jersey and maybe one other state that I'm forgetting. Sorry, forgotten state. Um, it's our norm. And there is a way in which the accountability that That's you're right. appointing to can be a good as well as a troubling thing. That's right. Kim Fox, thank you so thank much you for so joining much. us. Come back anytime. Thank you, Tim. That was great. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. So first a trickle, now a flood. Uh, This week has seen a torrent of news about really ill-behaving men. Uh, That's true most weeks, really. But (laughs) this particular week, it turned out that Bill O'Reilly paid a $32 million, or alleged to have paid a $32 million settlement in yet another sexual harassment case, after which Fox still offered him a new contract. Um, this, but this revelation appears to have scuttled O'Reilly's plans to go work for Sinclair Broadcasting. Uh, Director James Toback was accused of sexual assault and harassment by more than 200 women. Amazon TV executive Roy Price lost his job amid allegations of of this kind of misbehavior. John Besh, a New Orleans restaurateur, lost his job at the head of his own restaurant empire for it. Leon Wieseltier, a literary editor and longtime public intellectual, was dumped by the Brookings Institute and also by Steve Jobs' widow, Lauren Powell Jobs, who had been bankrolling his new magazine after a group of former colleagues of Wieseltier's complained of his sexual advances and lecherous and harassing behavior and more and more and more. So, is it all over? It's all over for the, is, are men, is it just, can we finally put a pin in these assholes? So, surely there are more people out there who are quaking more than they were last month. And I do, I do think, before I say what I feel like hasn't changed, um, So it does seem like since the Bill Cosby revelations, and maybe there's a way in which you could date it earlier that I'm not thinking of, that when a group of women come forward in solidarity, there's a way in which the numbers themselves are giving weight to accusations, even if we don't have a ruling in a court of law that in either the form of a criminal conviction or a civil suit backs them up. And that wasn't true before, right? It wasn't true when a group of women accused Bill Clinton of various forms of harassment and abuse. So that does seem to me like a real cultural shift. On the other hand, a group of women accused Donald Trump of these exact, well, some of the same forms of misconduct, and he was elected president. So I'm not sure how we can say that male impunity has been um, forever rectified. And I should say, and one of the things that he did on the way of to becoming president was bring some of the accusers to the second debate. Yes. Uh, some of Bill Clinton's accusers to the second debate. A tactic Just, that worked for him, I think. Well, to the extent that he got elected. Yeah. Um, well, but, 
that also it made the idea of Hillary Clinton taking on this issue sure. all the more difficult. And this was after the the access or the Billy Bush t- uh, tape too. Yeah, uh, isn't but doesn't it feel like after um, Harvey Weinstein? That's the thing that because Cosby was, as you quite rightly say, is the, the sheer tonnage, just the sheer numbers. But that was kind of directed at him. What's striking here is that all of this behavior that was at one level or another hidden, suddenly, once, I mean, it just, like, there was a huge shift. I mean, right. and that didn't happen after Cosby. Right. I do wonder, though, about putting too, giving too much power in terms of example to a situation in which a lot of some some to a lot of the women who came forward are very famous actresses and but, so you have that that sort of additional interest in their word right as opposed to you mean that you mean that the regular like old person who's got a boss who's doing this has no more power than before Harvey Weinstein that's right yeah. that i'm just not sure we can universalize right. and I wonder, all though but because, but well just uh, sorry john no 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 to, all of the examples that I cited and most of the examples that I think have been public are media yeah. businesses. I mean, John Besh is a restaurateur, but he's a fundamentally a media figure. He's a, and I don't know that we've seen, you know, in the mid-sized insurance company market, is, I'm not sure this is happening, in the hospital sector, are men being, you know, called to account for their grotesque behavior? Is it only in professions where people are celebrities, where there is a megaphone that can be used against them, where this is going to happen? Or do you think this can apply to, I mean, because I am sure that if there is sexual harassment going on in, at Harvey Weinstein's office and in John Besh's office, there is also, it's also going on at hospitals and mid-sized insurance companies. Right, but feel, if, sorry. No, go ahead. No, just if you worked for, if you were just like an anonymous person and you worked for a relatively anonymous employer or company and this was happening to you and you weren't sure if it was happening to anyone else, would you be any more likely to come forward? And, also, I think like it's so. I've been thinking about this a lot in terms of Leon Weaseltier. So he's the figure in our field, and you know we know of him. We know women who have experienced like crappy treatment from him. Um, the one time I met him, I thought he was a total lecherous jerk. He probably doesn't even remember that I wasn't working for him, but it's like a memory I definitely have. So in this discussion of why don't people come forward earlier and when everyone knows this about someone why does it continue in that moment there's so much shame and you blame yourself and you feel weird about it I can't even remember whether I went home and told my husband like the weird yucky thing that I experienced at dinner with Leon Weaseltier because I was like 28 and it made me feel worried that I had done something to bring it on the environment it happened it in made me feel like you know that there was something probably wrong with me um, or just that I he had power and I didn't. So that's a crucial point. If if maybe my original view, which is like, wow, something's really changed. Um, yeah, jumps over the fact that if you're still at anonymous company and, you know, you're still... Or that it's only obvious in retrospect, right? It's like once the momentum starts and Gwyneth Paltrow is on the front page of the New York Times making these sober accusations, we see that as heroic and honorable. And then we start pointing figures at everyone, all the men around, all the other women around, some of whom were part of this or enabled it. And it seems so obvious, like who was good and who was bad and who's up and who's down. But before it breaks, like it's not the least bit clear that it's going to play out that way. Right. 
have have these um have these assholes now made it uh unsafe for consensual workplace relationships is it are we moving to a place where where you can't you can no longer sleep with your boss basically I mean, that's something that's happened on college campuses much more. The sort of old model of like, okay, well, maybe I'm not going to ask that woman out on a date while she's in my class, but as soon as it's over, I will. And I mean, I have friends who are married from situations like that in happy marriages. The Obamas, right? Isn't the Obamas, if she was sort of his supervisor, right? Right. I guess that's true, technically. Yeah, right. So it's not as if it's always terrible problem that that power imbalance then translates into a different kind of one hopes equal relationship. But I think our concerns about relationships that begin from a power imbalance is continues to deepen. It does seem like the, when you look at the wine scenes or the Beshes or the Roy Prices or Weasel Tear, it's, they're really pathological. There's just, you know, it's not just one person who they've had a bad consensual relationship with. It's like dozens scores, that guy, 200, you know, a hundred, there was a story written about this, this director, James Toback, which had some 50 sources in it. And then in, over the next day, the reporter was contacted by 193 other women who had been abused by this guy. And so like, should we make policy to deal with these highly predatory people who are abusive to everybody and, and thus sort of constrain what may be more innocent, but still slightly icky relationships? Where do you draw the line? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I mean, I don't know. Is it, you know, pl- there's so many people, boss marries secretary, you know, you, you know Barack Obama marries uh, his supervisor, whatever it is. And you think like, that's a good story. That's a happy story. There's nothing wrong with it. And, but if we are fundamentally going to constrain sexual relationships at the workplace, those things will go away. And maybe they should, maybe they need to go away to prevent the, the Weinsteins from running rampant. I sort of think you could argue that right now we have, legally speaking, the worst of both worlds. So we have a lot of talk about sexual harassment in the workplace, and most of us have been through some irritating training about sexual harassment oh that makes God. it seem like a box that you check off. Do you think and- anyone's ever failed that training? <laughs> They make it impossible to fail, though. (laughs) Right. I mean, all of the things, like it's theft. A, should you steal the computer and take it home? B, no. (laughs) And yet they're still excruciating. Right. So we have these trainings. Why do we have these trainings? Because the Supreme Court basically said that a way that companies can insulate themselves from liability is by taking steps to prevent, to say that they are on it. And this kind of training checks the box. And then if you get a complaint, you have to have a process for that complaint. You have to investigate it. But you can take do that investigation in a cursory manner, put the results in a file drawer, never look at them again. And you've, again, you've checked the box. And these allegations are hard to prove. They often come down to situations of, you know, the sort of classic he said, she said, where, you know, sometimes there's corroborating evidence and sometimes there isn't. And so we have a lot of talk about this and the kind of sense that it's unacceptable and a lot of like bad jokes about it and not a lot of actual successful lawsuits and successful monitoring you know speaking of bad jokes about it i can imagine somewhere now in a workplace somebody in the course of just a heated or otherwise ambiguous interaction with people of somebody saying oh don't you know don't call me leon weaseltier or something and using that to create a different power dynamic 
in this in in the moment we're in right because then you're essentially like mocking the person who has made you feel right and then the other thing we should talk about are these non-disclosure agreements and the role they play because this is a way of buying silence and then people who've had these experiences don't tell what happened in a way that warns other people now maybe we think it's okay for companies to contract for people's silence but there is this social cost so here's a question about the non-disclosure agreements presumably a company that has a non-disclosure agreement has this public media reputation that they're trying to basically protect because that's why they have the non-disclosure so you don't quit and then, you know, make fun of your boss or the company. And so if they're in that position, isn't even asking for a non-disclosure agreement that has this kind of sexual harassment's okay by us clause, isn't that asking for that now in this new environment like a no-no? You can't, you can't ask for that because, because you, ha- you are this kind of company we're talking about. You're not the anonymous company. I don't think it can be... I don't think it will work as a taboo if it's just a social norm taboo. It will only work if it's a legal problem, right? So there are these questions about Harvey about Miramax. Like if they signed a new contract with Harvey Weinstein, knowing that he had all these settlements with women and they basically agreed not to look into that, to treat it as a private matter. Same thing, Fox and Bill O'Reilly. How can you say that you're complying with these laws where you're supposed to be protecting your employees from sexual harassment? Sorry, just to go back to... Uh She's the, you're the Kim Fox of. Mm-hmm. That was much milder, which is fine. <laughs> Can I just say, if I worked as an anonymous person in an anonymous company, it would be these kind of chairs we'd be sitting on. <laughs> Don't you feel like they're like from anonymous like company? From yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. Your performance uh, review is going very well, Mr. Anonymous. <laughs> you guys didn't answer my question. Should you be allowed to sleep with your boss? I mean... I think my wife would be unhappy. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't believe in telling consenting adults that they can't have sex. That seems like a bridge too far. Can I say something else? Which is this, um, this moment of, uh, of scoundrel men has made me so much appreciate the men in my life who I've worked for and worked with who have like never made me feel like any of this was a problem. We haven't been... And I don't mean to make this so purely, um, you know, gendered, but since usually we're talking about predatory men and blaming them, there are a lot of like incredibly decent, honorable men out there who promote women's careers and make us feel like you care about our whole person. And thank you for that. So we've had a series of stories about basically sexual harassment, sexual assault, bullying of women by men, misbehavior of men towards women. We have not seen, I don't think, kind of similar parallel examples of grotesque racist behavior or uh, anti-religious, prejudicially anti-religious behavior. Um, Is that because those cases don't exist? Or is it because those cases... Are, do happen, but people don't perceive them as being outrageous, or is it because people are afraid to report it? I mean, do you think there is there is a the kind of a Harvey Weinstein equivalent who is just treating uh, his Latino employees in this incredibly terrible way, racist way, and that it, but it's not being reported, or 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 not. Well, I think there are employers out there who do those things. It. 
Right. And then I guess, are they doing it in a way that is somehow more hidden and so then harder for people to address, lately speaking? Or is it possible that the sheer volume of sexual harassment is bigger? I'm not sure. I don't know. I mean, yes, it's uh, of course it's happening. I'm just trying to think through the. It doesn't. Ha- I think if I'm trying to looking for the example, the only one I could come up with is Mel Gibson, which was not a not what you're describing, but it is a um, a way in which public sanction for that kind of behavior when it burst into the open was severe and now maybe some people would argue maybe not because he's still going to the you know academy awards and all the rest of it and um and so um is there i guess is your question could this as easily happen to a company uh the way it happened to harvey weinstein where some where there's an initiating event and somebody says oh yeah it's been that way for years and just as as acute and egregious yeah yeah but it just doesn't seem like those Either people aren't interested in that or they just don't become public. Or maybe people, this is not a form of terrible behavior that people engage in all the time. I don't know. That doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. It's, it's just it's super a, clear that racial discrimination in the workplace sure. and hiring and promotion takes place all oh, yeah. the time, it's, right, right? right? It may not be, be like it's, as, right. but it's Right, happening. I think that's the... Oh, no, it's, it's, it's more what I mean, happening. But is it happening in, the, in this kind of... Yes. Acute oh, way. Acute way. Yes, no, in this, but it's like, happening probably more. kind of way. Yeah. Our audience is taking over. Yeah, the audience is. <laughs> so let's go to uh, cocktail chatter when you're when you're downing your Peroni, John Dickerson. What are you going to be oh, chattering about? I'm first. Uh, okay. You were more uh, organized than me. You okay. Made me like try to. So I um, have uh, recently been um, spending some time thinking about Calvin Coolidge, as all of you have. <laughs> <clears throat> Because um, it feels like to me that the, mo- the modern presidency is bound on the one hand by President Trump and on the other by Calvin Coolidge, and here's why I think that. So Calvin Coolidge sometimes would sleep 14 out of 24 hours a day, and he also indulged in frequent naps. The president is up early. We know from his Twitter account that he's up early. Um, Coolidge said that as a national leader, uh, a president should not, quote, go ahead of the majestic army of human thought and aspiration blazing new and strange paths. The president has definitely blazed new paths. Um, Coolidge said, perhaps one of the most important accomplishments of my administration has been minding my own business. (laughs) No presidential candidate, said Coolidge, was ever injured by not talking too much. So this is so. I wish I, he was a great president, and then we could look back on this. Like well, and there's also this trial. tragedy in the middle of Coolidge's presidency where his son dies, and so a lot of people think that this is what that he. Anyway, but as I was looking into Coolidge's life, I found this somewhat amusing thing. First of all, they were obsessed with his health because, of course, Harding had died. We think of the presidency being covered a lot now, but back then there's a story in the New York Times: Coolidge takes ill, recovers quickly, combination of heat. And cantaloupe causes a brief <laughs> causes a brief attack of indigestion. That was the subhead. That's awesome. Pres- subhead so ever. there's an entire story in the New York Times on May 23rd. President Coolidge suffered a slight attack of indigestion today in his office. Anyway, so as I was as I was learning about the president's cantaloupe indigestion matters, I found that um, one of the ways that the president worked towards good health was um, was was this, and this is again from the New York Times. President Coolidge owns a hobby horse. 
This hobby horse is a very remarkable creature. It bears little resemblance to the hobby horse of nurseries or merry-go-rounds. Mr. Coolidge's plaything is an electric device designed for exercise at the fireside or for one who is not disposed to go outdoors. This horse is installed in the president's dressing room. It is so equipped that the person in the saddle can take light, moderate, or heavy exercise. The president's mount is said to meet the demands of exercise of a man who is pressured for time. So it turns out that the president just needed th- an elliptical machine. three times a day, um, and Jesus, can we um, put, a, put a picture up on the screen? Oh, my God. Three times a day, the president was up on this thing. What? He did not ride actual horses, according to the New York Times, because he suffers with a nasal infection, which is... <laughs> this is my favorite. This is so TMI about poor Calvin Coolidge. It gets better. This is, I'm just reading from the New York Times. What can I say? <laughs> the failing, failing New York Times. Uh, Succeeding New York he Times. He suffers with, nas- with a nasal infection, which, his friends declare, becomes aggravated by the effluvia that arise from the equine hide. <laughs> now... You might think that this does not provide the kind of exercise that you would need to face the, the uh, challenges of the job, even if you are, as Coolidge uh, once said, that nine out of ten problems brought to his office could be safely ignored. Um, <laughs> this, this device behind me offers the following. Vibrating handles and quivering straps on the automatic shimmy makes the body of the user shake in a highly effective modern jazz style. <laughs> That seemed extraordinary. Anyway, so, and then now I'm moving towards my conclusion. Um, And I'm glad that that line did not elicit applause. Um, The reason we all came to know this was not because it was talked about or snickered about in the um, White House canteen, but because the president apparently got on his mount and suffered an injury. It seems that recently Mr. Coolidge was putting the horse through some of his paces and that in the midst of the excitement, he got mixed in his buttons. <laughs> this, is not, this is not a euphemism. <laughs> According to the New York Times, the result was that the animal became involved in gait and the rider was forced in haste to jump from the saddle. Can you imagine during the Cold War if the Russians knew this? They'd be like... We're like, forget Cuba. We're just going right in. We're just going to move the missiles into Baltimore. Anyway, the White House veterinarian was not consulted, wrote the New York Times. (laughs) Instead, and you feel like the writer had like a martini next to his typewriter as he was having so much fun. Instead, (laughs) the president sent for an electrician. Where is that, John? Where's that object? It's in the, that's in the Calvin Cool, uh, Coolidge Historical uh, Museum. Are you sure um, that's not part of your house? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. Yeah, right. That's like an early Peloton. Um. Emily, what is your chatter? So um, I've been paying attention, maybe some of you have been as well, to the plight of a 17-year-old girl whose name we don't know. Um, she was, had came to this country, crossed the border from a a country in Central America where abortion is illegal, and when she was nine weeks pregnant in ICE custody, asked to have an abortion. And her case has been litigated for more than a month. 
The Trump administration's efforts to block her abortion included going to court and arguing that even though she was a minor who was saying that she was in danger in her home country, that the choice to not have an abortion was one she'd brought on herself, that she voluntarily removed herself from the country, in other words, went back um, to a place that abortion is illegal, that she could um, have the procedure herself, that making an abortion accessible to her in the custody of the federal government was, was not acceptable to the politics of the Trump administration. So lots of litigation, judges on both sides. And Wednesday, the judges made their decision. Uh, The ACLU won this lawsuit. And this girl was able to have, to make her own decision. Um, And so she, through her lawyer, issued a statement. She said, I've been waiting for more than a month since I made my decision. It's been very difficult to wait in the shelter for news that the judges in Washington, D.C. have given me permission to proceed. And then she said that she was touched by the show of love from people from all over the country who wrote to her. And then she said, this is my life, my decision. I want a better future. I want justice. And this seems like it's always what it comes down to in the end. Are women, are girls going to get to make the decision themselves about what their future is going to look like? And with all of the, you know, moral dilemmas and disagreements that abortion gives rise to, and I know those are deep-seated, there's always just this question about what it what it looks like to actually force someone to have a baby when they don't want to do that, and how, how you can ever square that with letting um, women choose their own future. So I want to tell a story about why it is there are no living people on U.S. currency, and this is based on uh, some a story that one of my colleagues, Michael Waters, wrote for Atlas Obscura. So if you're worried about there being a Donald Trump $12 bill, (laughs) worry no longer. There's an 1866 law that prevents any living person from being on U.S. currency. Why? That's not going to prevent forever, Donald Trump. Well, the Congress will never pass, can't pass health care reform. They're not going to pass currency reform either. Uh, They're not going to get rid of the penny, for example. And this story begins with a man named Spencer Clark. Now, Spencer Clark was, ran, uh, he, was the, he was the superintendent of the National Currency Bureau from 1862 to 1868. And while he was the superintendent, he became a very controversial figure for sort of Harvey Weinstein reasons. He, he, uh, the treasury under his watch became, quote, a house for orgies and bacchanals. He was accused of hiring women based on their looks rather than their ability. Um, he, one woman told Congress he had offered her first $100, then 10 times that amount for a tryst with her, which is, that's a lot of money. Um, but I guess he was the head of the currency, yeah. so it would just be like, take one of those, <laughs> take one of those bills. Yes, monetary easing. Um, I'll make some more money. But so, but this, that's not why, uh, that's not why we ended up here. So in uh, 1866, one of the, with, um, the war, the Civil War, sort of having uh, wreaked havoc with all sorts of things in the economy, they, uh, there were shortage of metals, and so there, were, there was not enough metal for coinage, and so the U.S. decided to print fractional currency. They were, so they were printing bills in small amounts, including the five-cent bill. And, oh, my God, I'm so glad we don't have that yeah. anymore. Yeah, which is really dumb because there was a nickel. <laughs> so... There was We're also really a, adding to this. There was a three-cent bill also. Oh, God. And so Congress passed a but Congress, because it's their law, they passed a law that said uh, William Clark um, should be on the five-cent bill. William Clark, let's get a picture of William Clark up there. 
William Clark is, of course, the great explorer of Lewis and Clark. He was going to get his place on, you know, a kind of piddling-ass denomination, but still, it was the, he was going to be on the five-cent bill. Now, let's get a picture of Spencer Clark up there. You'll notice you. that Spencer Clark and William Clark have the same last name. They're not related. They're not the same person, however. But the instructions came over from Congress and just said that someone named Clark had to be on the bill. And so what happened is that Spencer Clark, if we can have our next photo, had himself printed on the five-cent note. He, he does have a better beard. He does have a... He's very... Yeah, he's, he looks like he belongs on U.S. <laughs> currency. Um, but this... So this note was in circulation, and Congress went crazy. And in 1866, shortly after this bill was printed, they passed a law saying no living person could be on U.S. currency. But what was... All, there was actually a coda, which is that they neglected in passing that bill to actually get rid of the five-cent bill of Clark. So they had to go back and pass a second bill, which, which stopped them from printing the five-cent note with Spencer Clark on it. But So you have to admire a man who had the moxie to get the U.S. government to put, put out bills with his own face on them. That's our show for today. The Political Gab Fest is produced by Jocelyn Frank. Our researcher is Izzy Road. Faith Smith, who you met earlier, organized this live show. And thanks to the Reskin Theater for hosting us. And follow us, follow us on Twitter at SlateGabFest, where we have a lot of lively conversations. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson, thank you so much, Chicago. I'm David Plotz. We'll be back with you next week. <laughs>